it was very naive to believe that the Ethiopian transition put in motion in 2018 should be a quick fix, easy process in it within a matter of a year or two. We are talking about the oldest sub-Saharan state, which have been authoritarian and centralized for 2,000 years. It doesn't change in one or two years. It takes some generations, in my view, to change that. You are listening to In Pursuit of Development with Dan Bannock. Welcome to the final episode of Season 1. Over the past six months, we've covered a wide range of topics related to globalization, economic growth, inequality, poverty reduction, democracy, institution building, foreign aid and sustainable development, in addition to focusing on the politics of development in many parts of the world. I'm particularly grateful to all my fantastic guests for sharing their ideas with me and you on the show. I've also been thrilled to receive some great feedback from many of you, and I'm particularly pleased that several listeners have recommended the show to their friends and colleagues, and some institutions have actually made specific episodes a part of the syllabus of the courses they offer to their students. When I launched In Pursuit of Development around six months ago, I did not expect the show to reach thousands of listeners in over a hundred countries around the world. But I also did not anticipate the kind of work it requires every week. So I'm taking a short break now to catch up on my writing, but I will be back shortly in season two with some more fantastic guests. The focus of this final episode of the season is Ethiopia, where the ongoing conflict between the federal government in Addis and the Tigray People's Liberation Front, or the TPLF, that controls the Tigray region, is making daily news headlines all over the world. Ever since becoming the Prime Minister of Ethiopia in 2018, Abiy Ahmed has undertaken several bold reforms. He's also appointed women in key official positions and freed political prisoners. His efforts to achieve peace and international cooperation, and in particular his efforts to resolve the border conflict with neighboring Eritrea, resulted in Mr. Ahmed being awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 2019. But there have also been critical voices within the country that have warned against an over-reliance on charisma and announcing major initiatives without adequate preparation or anticipation of potential consequences. Therefore, and despite the frenetic pace of change the country has witnessed since 2018, many Ethiopians have remained worried over growing income inequality, high levels of youth unemployment, and simmering tensions and factional battles within the ruling coalition. Ethiopia has been one of Africa's fastest-growing economies for the past decade and a half, and there has been considerable talk of the country's rise as potentially the only true developmental state on the continent. In addition to rapid economic growth, signature development projects such as the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam have given rise to comparisons with East Asian successes such as South Korea and Taiwan. 
a country that typically made world headlines for abject poverty and sensational famines is now considered to be one of the most promising economies on the continent. Ethiopia is also a major contributor to UN peacekeeping operations, which has strengthened the country's identity as an important security provider externally, while at the same time guaranteeing peace and stability for international investors within the country. But Ethiopia has also continued to face major obstacles, such as its conflict with Egypt over water-sharing agreements, the viability of democratic reforms, and the future of its federal political setup. And now there are widespread fears that a civil war will not only spread and exacerbate ethnic tensions within the country, but also destabilize the Horn of Africa. My guest on the show today is Shetil Tronvol, who is a well-known Ethiopia expert and is currently a professor of peace and conflict studies at Birkness University College in Norway. He has undertaken long-term fieldwork in Eritrea, Ethiopia and Zanzibar, in addition to shorter field studies in many countries on the African continent. In addition to publishing extensively on human rights, transitional justice, elections, and peace, reconciliation, and conflict studies, Shetil has served as an advisor to political reconciliation processes and international peace-mediating initiatives. He has also participated in election observer missions in several African countries. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Shetil. It's so lovely to see you today. Welcome to the show. It's an honor to be invited, Dan, to uh, talk about my favorite topic with you. Indeed. You know, when we last met in December 2019, I believe it was during that seminar, we were both a part of Mm. On Ethiopia in connection with the Nobel Peace Prize that was awarded to Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed from Ethiopia. And I recall, you know, some of those discussions that we had then, Generally, of course, I recall, um, you know, this inspiring speech that Abiy Ahmed um, uh, had during the Nobel Award Ceremony, and there was considerable optimism and joy, I suppose, among the diaspora, but also generally in terms of how, you know, there was this kind of huge promise for the country. And we later in the conversation discuss certain issues related to politics and development in general in Ethiopia, but I wanted to first get your reactions on the start of what certainly appears to be a civil war uh, within the country. And in recent months, of course, tensions have escalated between the federal government in Addis and the and the TPLF, the Tigray People's Liberation Front, in terms of the, the northernmost region of the country. And there are news reports as we speak. Today is Friday. And there are news reports of fighting between government forces and the TPLF and Now you just told me about Eritrea getting involved and some organizations such as Amnesty have reported hundreds of casualties already. Um, In a recent interview to the Voice of America, I read that you you were quoted as saying, we are not on the brink of civil war. Ethiopia is in the midst of a civil war. So my question really is, 
what is going on? What what are the origins and uh, what is the catalyst of this current crisis? Uh, give us a sense of of the origins and also some of the latest news as you see coming out of Ethiopia. After Abiy Ahmed took the chairmanship and became uh, the prime minister of Ethiopia uh, on the back of the Oromo protest movement uh, and the Oromo first um, policy. He, after then an initial six to eight months of reforms and very broad-based rushed reforms, which everyone applauds, by the end of 2018, early 2019, you saw you started to see some changes in his rhetoric and also in the way he kind of posed his party, EPRDF. And instead of enhancing an Arumo policy or an ethno-national policy, strengthening the multinational federal setup of Ethiopia, he started to talk more about pan-Ethiopian ideas and bringing people together under a new umbrella and centralizing power in Addis Ababa instead of enhancing the devolvement of power under the federal system. And that started to create um, pushbacks, certainly from the his own constituency, uh, the Orumo youth who brought him there, but also clearly from TPLF who is the designer of the current multinational federal system, together with OLF, the old Oromo Liberation Front. They felt very uncomfortable when Abiy Ahmed started to talk about Ethiopian nationalism and Ethiopian identity and bringing power back to the center. And we have to remember that TPLF, after they lost the election of the new chairman, they accepted the defeat and they pulled back, so to say, to Mekele, to Tigray, the northern province of the country. They didn't continue the, the struggle for power at the center. And the Tigrayan people at that time were both enthusiastically positive to the reforms put in motion by Abiy Ahmed, but were equally happy that their leadership were back home, as they said, because they were... Part of the grievances as seen from Tigray region is that they believed that the EPRDF leadership, their best brains of TPLF, had went, went to Addis to develop Ethiopia, and they forgot about Tigray. Tigray is still the most, one of the most impoverished states in the Ethiopian Federation, with the, with the weakest potential of an agricultural harvest and also the, some of the weakest infrastructure as such. That's hard to believe for many Ethiopians, but the majority of Ethiopians have never been to Tigray to see the landscape there, compared to the richness and fertile areas of the south, southern region and the Rumiya region, for instance. So when um, Abiy Ahmed increasingly became more and more Ethiopianist in his orientation in 2019, we saw an increasing skepticism from... um, Segments of his own party, Lema Mergelsa, for instance, his uh, former boss, but also from TPLF. And um, then suddenly in the summer of 2019, he started to talk about establishing a new party, a, a unitary party, not an ethnic coalition as EPRDF was. 
which created again uh, ruffled the feathers in the north and created an alarmist discourse among segments of the old EPRDF elite. Uh, and then you clearly saw that this is um, a path towards a major confrontation if it wasn't handled uh, with mitigating interventions. Because the language used by both sides, both the kind of pan-Ethiopian nationalist language by Abiy Ahmed and his new leadership, but then the counter-language from TPLF, who called this the takeover of the party of the uh, Derg remnants, and so on and so forth. That language clearly harked back to the 17 years of struggle, to the uh, resistance war waged by TPLF against the military junta and the centralizing government in the 70s and 80s. But Shetil, I was having a look at the composition of the major ethnic groups, and we're talking about a federal country. We're talking about Oromos constituting, what, around 34 35% of mm. the population, and then you have the Amharas around 27%. The Tigran group only constitutes 6%, mm. but they, they've had um, considerable influence. Mm. In fact, they've dominated the mm. ruling coalition for, for many, many years. Mm. And suddenly they find themselves following Abiy Ahmed's rise to be somewhat mm. sidelined, right? And then there were these elections, and, and we'll get back to Abiy's leadership. Mm elections that were mm. supposed to be held this year, earlier this year, were postponed. And of course, the official excuse was the, the pandemic. But do you think the, the crisis today is, of course, because the TPLF feels sidelined, because they want, they aspire for statehood, uh, they are dissatisfied with other long-held grievances that do not seem to be uh, getting ad adequate attention in Addis. Is it a combination of all of this? That would be one set of issues. The other one would be, I suppose, from the Oromos and the others saying, hey, you guys dominated politics for so long, despite being a minority, it is now our time to rule. So, so you know, how do you see these two opposing kind of aspirations and demands? Well, to be very kind of narrow it down, it's um, it's a combination of the two, but it started with your latter point that the TPLF were pushed out of power by the Romos and the Amharas, saying that this is our turn now. And uh, as you rightly say, the Tigrayan people is a demographic minority compared to the Romos and Amharas, certainly so. But that has slided over, and the core issue today... And the core issue of the war is two fundamentally different perceptions of what Ethiopia shall be and what Ethiopia is to start with. And that's the core. And that's why this conflict runs much, much deeper than a discord between Abiy Ahmed and TPLF, because it involves then a lot of other political actors and forces in the country. And you have to remember that the so-called multinational federal alliance in Ethiopia, that embraces political parties or fractions from all regions and certainly from Oromia. That the old OLF, Oromo Liberation Front, uh, and its um, component parts, so to say, certainly represented by the party Oromo Federalist Congress, um, they are allies with TPLF in, on this issue. They want also a strong federal devolved power 
a weak center and strong regional states. They are equally concerned by Abiy Ahmed's policies as TPLF is. So it is, you know, Abiy Ahmed are presenting a model which he thinks is a new model of Ethiopia. He's talking about Medemer, an Amharic expression translated as synergy or that coming together, we can create something more than the component parts of us. Um, and he says that the commonness of Ethiopia, the history of Ethiopia, the, um, of a bright you know, historical record uh, as an empire uh, is what will catapult us into the future to become an equally bright new country and a strong new country. But to achieve that, you need a strong center. And he talks about himself in terminology, which goes back to the imperial reign. He talks about himself as the seventh king, the seventh emperor coming. He talks about himself as a prophecy too, but we can pick that up later. The religiosity of Abiy Ahmed, which is very, very central to his policies too. But all this terminology he uses, which kind of he thinks is something innovative, is perceived as something ancient, as by TPLF and by other forces. It's perceived as going back in time instead of going forward. It's perceived as bringing Ethiopia back to either an imperial reign or at least a very centralized and hence, in their eyes, suppressive government as the Dirk. I'm fascinated by by this analysis of yours, Shetil, because, you know, when I heard the word Medeme and I heard Abi speak about it at um, the Nobel Award Ceremony in Oslo, it was... It was, you know, I felt it was extremely forward-looking. It was about mm. coming together. It was mm. about, in Amharic, I believe it means addition. Um, it is about synergy. It is about mm. getting uh, a very sort of, all these um, ethnic groups together under one Ethiopian identity. So I find it fascinating that, you fi- that you're saying that what was, was perceived to be very forward-looking outside Ethiopia was, was considered the opposite within Ethiopia. Yeah, but you have to remember that the, the 2,000 years or whatever, 1,500 years or however you count it, of the imperial reign in Ethiopia, that was one type of Medemer because it was a very assimilistic policy. Whoever spoke Amharic, converted to Orthodox Christianity, could rise up to become a nobility even an emperor. Haile Selassie is half Oromo. Most of the recent Oromo emperor, uh, uh, most of the Ethiopian emperors are a mixed background. Mengistu Haile Mariam, the leader of the military junta, comes from the southern uh, nation nationalities. They were not Amharas by blood, but they were Amharas by culture. It is described as. So talking about coming together again in that language, in an assimilistic kind of policy rings a bell from certain of the minorities or from certain people who have felt suppressed by the centralized state as, oh, oh, watch out. We are going back to a new centralizing, suppressive, subjugating state. Shetil, if we could return to this optimistic tone that was signaled following Abiy Ahmed's ascent to power, 
there were all of these transformations taking place very quickly. And you have a situation in 2018 when the TPLF, which played a dominant role in the preceding decades under the EPRDF coalition, is sidelined. RB, representing the Roma group, is elected to lead the coalition. He makes world headlines. He makes peace with Eritrea. There is generally an upbeat feeling among any of the diaspora, the Ethiopian diaspora, but also within many groups within the country. And I remember during a visit to Addis in 2019, I noticed a big difference, you know, in terms of how people were discussing politics. And I had been there 10 years ago, and it appeared to me there was far greater mm. freedom of speech and that people were mm. not afraid to voice their views, as was the case when I last visited the country, where people were really scared to talk. So you have now the situation of this young and dynamic new leader grabbing world headlines, a growing economy. You know, to outsiders, this looked like Ethiopia's moment. You know, it was True. all of these... Um, good things that were happening, right? There were democratic freedoms, women were being appointed, you know, human rights activists that I had met were suddenly in key positions. Opposition leaders were asked to come back from exile. So so all of this was happening. And I understand, and I, and I do see your point about, you know, how mm. long-held conflicts mm. were perhaps kept in check, right, on, um, during the the previous regime, and then suddenly when Abi was modernizing, all of this suddenly came to the forefront. So my question then is, Shetil, what does this tell us about the process of democratization? Should democratization in these contexts proceed slowly? Was, was Abi too quick? Certainly he was, in my view. Um, and, and I also stress, and I need to emphasize that it was a fantastic, fantastic change and I've written about that and I praise that what we saw in 2018 it was a it was a 180 degree turnaround in terms of freedom of expression freedom of assembly daring to speak out to power which was unprecedented in any historical time in Ethiopia that window in 2018 beginning of 2019 before it started to somehow shrink back again but what you say is you know what can this tell us about transitions and for the first, you know, I've been very skeptical to the international community, observers, journalists, diplomats, development workers, what's not, who kind of two weeks after Abi taking power kind of said, okay, the job is done. No, Ethiopia will be democratic. It never, ever happens that one man can turn around a country to be a democracy without the institutional framework in place to cater for that, the checks and balances of to power. And um, that's what I started to be aware of and observe and also to comment upon then in uh, 2019, saying that, you know, well, really what we see here is a very thin top layer of a political elite arguing for reforms, yes, but that... All the institutions of checks and balances, the judiciary, the court, the police, the prosecution, the election commission, the uh, human rights commission, the parliament itself, not the least, you name it. Everything was more or less the same, but they changed a couple of people at the top, at the very top. You changed the chief justice, that's it. You changed the 
uh, chair of the election commission, that's it. You changed the chair chair of the human rights commission, that's it. You didn't change the parliament. The parliament were all the same, uh, a one-party parliament, all represented the all EPRDF. So to believe, that's one thing. And then, which many people comment upon also, that Abi set in motion a lot of reforms at the same time without having a clear strategy, without having a clear roadmap, without having a clear sequencing of events. Should we maybe prioritize A, B, and C before we start Z, X, and Y? Everything was kind of thrown in the same pile and let's run with it. Inviting back armed opposition, for instance, from neighboring hostile Eritrea without disarming them, in the midst of inviting back every other opposition and an activist from abroad with different agendas and splitting agendas. It might, for instance, as it, we tried to argue at that time, it would have been advisable possibly to wait to invite back the armed opposition until a new election had been conducted. So you had a better platform to accommodate more divisive forces, for instance. And, you know... As you also know very well, Dan, that political transitions from authoritarian regimes most often end up not in democracy, but in a different type of authoritarianism. Because the lack of this institutional framework, because of the lack of the proper checks and balances, because of the lack of a mature democratic political culture, which takes possibly generations to nurture. So... It was very naive to believe that the Ethiopian transition put in motion in 2018 should be a quick fix, easy process in a, within a matter of a year or two. We are talking about the oldest sub-Saharan state, which have been authoritarian and centralized for 2000 years. It doesn't change in one or two years. It takes some generations, in my view, to change that. And so I think also this overly optimistic in my view, also overly naive view of Abi Ahmed and his government uh, has been an obstacle to, to provide accountability in this process. And we see the result partly today when the country again is at full war with itself. I remember, and this is not a recent thing, even you know, in 2018, 2019, there were many voices saying that while it's great with this Abi mania or mm. the messiah that we should really be distinguishing between a painkiller and a cure. So, you know, was it too quick? But, you know, in, in defense and in support of, say, Abi Ahmed, I could say that one can get a bit carried away, you know, one is getting a well, lot of things, a lot of achieving a lot of things like peace that was unthinkable, perhaps, you know, uh, before he you know, and then so you get a bit, you know, you want this momentum, right? You you want, and there's this kind of hope among the youth and, and, and people have been waiting for so long. So you can't fault that momentum, can you? Well, I'm getting old and cynical. I mean, <laughs> you know, fair enough. But I was there on the ground when Isaias took power in 91. I was there when Meles took power in 91. I, you know, you saw Museveni, you saw Kagame. When the, the so-called new generation of African leaders, no, a whole of Africa will turn Democrats. It never happened. 
You've seen what's happening in other parts of Africa more recently. Magafuli took power five years ago in Tanzania. Everyone shared, wow, wow, wow. No, really. Hapakasi too. You know, are we going to clean the house? No, they will turn around Tanzania. Everything will be fantastic. Well, look at what's happening in Tanzania today. And so on and so forth. It is, yes, we should be optimistic, of course, but one shouldn't be naive. Because there is something called the institutional framework. There's something called the political culture of a country. There, is, there are some historicities involved. There is an ethnographic composition. There are so many components playing in to ensure a stable transition, which is not factored in to this overly optimistic view that this is a quick fix. Yeah? You're absolutely right about that because it, it was also in relation to something that I was having a brief look at in terms of the new foreign policy white paper that was published. You know, it was the government mm -hmm. was engaged in revising many overarching policy guidelines in terms of Ethiopian foreign policy. It was also criticized then for being haphazard, arbitrary, unpredictable. They didn't even get expert diplomatic inputs. Uh, and, and your point about the weak institutions. Mm. And there were all kinds of uh, rumors, I don't know if they were mm. true, about the Ministry of Foreign Affairs being weakened and many other institutions. A lot of people resigned. So I think there was this kind of frustration, you know, with this kind of reliance on personal charm rather than strengthening institutions. And mm. institution building takes a lot of time. So th that that is really the challenge, isn't it? I mean, you have the demand for new change urgent change and reforms, but then institutions take time and they just can't keep up with somebody who is running so fast. Exactly. And somebody who is running so fast without any roadmap, so to say, without any overall strategy, without any kind of intermediate goals and objectives. It's just everything at one time. And as you pointed out, which based a lot of his initial drive on personal charisma, which is certainly a valid point for any politician, but basing also his coming to power on a religious prophecy. And, you know, for me, being a diehard atheist, hearing after just a couple of weeks how Abi Ahmed stressed that he is the second coming, so to say. He is a prophecy which were foretold by his mother when he was six years old that one time he should be the new king of the country and bring it to prosperity. That makes me very nervous when any politician brings God into the equation to justify their policies, no matter what it is. And I think that should have been an eye-opener for many more. But that rhetoric, of course, resonates with the deeply religious Ethiopia. I have full respect for that. But it also resonates with many international interlocutors to Ethiopia, you know, the Christian humanitarian industry, so to say, uh, uh, NGOs, uh, development agencies, diplomats, um, many come from that sector of, um, of society. And uh, they felt very well at home with someone speaking or rather preaching that language. And that was, um, that cast um, a, a, a blur in, in many's eyes that, you know, oh, finally, this is a person who, uh, who we can relate to because we have the same faith. We, we use the same uh, kind of paradigms to understand ourselves. Do you think it was a failed strategy to highlight his Muslim and Christian roots? Isn't that something that... I'm not talking about highlighting 
mixed religious background with his family. I'm talking about him, him talking about himself as a concrete prophecy. Right. At, as he is, he's on a mission from God, basically. That's what I'm extremely skeptical towards. And everyone should be, in my view, because God doesn't have anything to do with politics. That he has a, a, a Muslim, you know, from his father's side and Orthodox Christians from his mother's side and himself is a Pentecostalism. That's, that's fair enough. That's good. That he can, that he can uh, you know, relate to several religious domains, but to bring religion up into his politics, that's a totally different matter. Why do you think he did that? Because he believes in it. He sincerely believes he is a prophecy. What do you think would have happened during the elections if they were held? Because that's something that I was thinking a little about. And, and there were all of these reports mm. saying that there was, you know, a likelihood that he would lose, his party would lose. If COVID had not happened, Shetil, mm. if everything had gone according to plan and elections mm. were supposed to be held in April, wasn't it? What would have happened, you think? Yeah, originally the election calendar is in May, but then because of a, a delayed and then um, inequipped, so to say, and and um, uh, a lot of other issues in the election board, uh, they didn't manage to conduct it in May. So then they postponed it to August. Uh, before this was before the COVID, so to say, came uh, on board, and then. Uh, uh, when the COVID uh, came, they postponed it indefinitely. If the election had been conducted in May or August, based on, you know, I have been coordinating a couple of very large-scale research projects together with other colleagues in Ethiopia since uh, the spring until September this year, covering uh, all the highland, Tigray, Amhara, Oromia region, but also all the parts of Ethiopia. And... Um, empirical material from the ground, of course, triangulated with all other sources we know of, I would say clearly indicates that the Prosperity Party would have lost the vote in Oromia region, certainly in Tigray, uh, would have had um, a split vote uh, in Amhara, uh, possibly other fractions there, Nama, for instance, would have done it better, and uh, they would have uh, fared, I don't know, uh, not so good in the other uh, regional states of Ethiopia. So yes, Prosperity Party in in uh, in the best calculations we do have based on empirical research would likely have lost the election. That's why also other opposition representatives of the opposition's leader have accused Abiy Ahmed to postpone it because he knew he would lose. I'm not saying that was the reason he postponed the election, because it's justifiable to postpone based on the pandemic. I think about half of the elections scheduled to take place in 2020 were postponed due to that in the world. So fair enough. But because of his new policy, Prosperity Party, the union, you know, the, the centralizing pan-Ethiopian policy, yes, it does have support by a certain segment of the Ethiopian population, obviously. The urban, mixed urban base in Addis Ababa, uh, who doesn't identify on uh, ethnicity at all, or other urban centers in Ethiopia. Shoah, Orumu, yes. Certain segments of the Amhara people, yes. But the main uh, bulk of Orumia, as, as most analysts and researchers and Ethiopians and Orumos interpret, Prosperity Party will not fare well, if it is a credible and open election.
But obviously, it is naive to think about that Ethiopia should conduct an open and fair and free election this year or next year or the year after, again, because the institutional framework is not there. Let's move on to one of his big achievements, Abiy Ahmed's ability to... um you know, um, reach this peace agreement with Eritrea and mm-hmm. his personal relationship with Isis Afwerki, the president of mm-hmm. Eritrea. So, you know, returning to what we were discussing earlier about the origins of the current conflict and, and the reason perhaps it has flared up again is perhaps, and I'd like to hear your view on this, this, this whole peace agreement, right? So you have the, the Tigray region being... I suppose, squeezed from both Eritrea and from Addis. Mm. There are leaders feeling yeah. in Tigray that, uh, you know, Eritrea, that, that both uh, the prime minister of Ethiopia and the president of Eritrea are somehow in cahoots together. And you just mentioned to me before the recording started that Eritrea is now involved in the conflict. So where does this fit in? Where does Eritrea fit into not just the historical, but also now in terms of the current conflict? Yeah, I have written a couple of books and a dozen articles on on that conflict, the Eritrea, Ethiopia, Eritrea, Tigray relations over the last twenty five years. And um, uh, as you may know, uh, my first field work we were in Eritrea at the end of the Liberation War right. to Independence, ninety one to ninety three, uh, and I've worked quite a lot in Eritrea. And then uh, follow-up fieldworks in Tigray and Ethiopia. Also during then the 1998-2000 war, I, I worked on the Ethiopian side and did fieldwork in the war zones of Tigray. Uh, I, I think I know uh, rather well <laughs> this relationship. Yes, Isaias Apwerki of, um, of Eritrea, the president there, is the old um, EPLF, Eritrean People's Liberation Front's leader the liberation hero who brought Eritrea to freedom, but later turned into be one of the worst dictators the world have ever seen and who have rechained his people um, under his uh, one party and one person rule ever since. Um, the arch enemy of Isai Sapwerki is TPLF, his neighbor across the border to the south in Tigray. And he has clearly stated that over and over and over again, basically because, you know, he protested very early on because of the ethnic federal system TPLF introduced in Ethiopia, which is the kind of the antithesis to his own ideology, which is a very territorialized nationalism in Eritrea. It's the Spartan state of the modern world, so to say. Everyone, no matter what kind of religious background, what kind of ethnicity, what kind of gender, what kind of social class, you are supposed to suffer and die for the nation. Um, And um, he early on stated that this federal system Ethiopia was a household card which soon would topple Ethiopia into chaos. He said that in the 1990s. And kind of ever since, he has worked on that agenda, in my view. Since the 1998-2000 war and the ceasefire and the peace agreement then established at the end of 2000, the peace never arrived, as we know. It was a no war, no peace situation until Abiy came to power 2018. Um, 
throughout 20 from 2000 to 2018 Melle expressed on several occasions that he could sit down in Asayas anytime uh, to negotiate the implementation of the border agreement uh, the border demarcation Haile Mariam when he took power he said the same he is willing to negotiate anytime uh, to demarcate the border on the ground but they need to sit down to talk together then Abe came to power and he said the same, more or less the exact same words. And on all other occasions, Isai Safwerki has rejected the call for dialogue. But when Abe came, he said, okay, yes, let's talk. So what changed between the two former leaders and Abe? Well, it's not rocket science in my view. The change is that TPLF was squeezed out of power from Addis Ababa. They lost Addis. Hence, it was a new elite in town, which Isaias could relate to, to continue to pursue his overall objective to further marginalize TPLF and crush them one time and for all. An agenda was partly overlapped with Abi Ahmed, who needed help to further kind of tame TPLF within the politics of Ethiopia. Hence, they managed to reach a peace, peace declaration first, and then later a peace agreement signed in, in Saudi. Um, but you have to remember, and that was fantastic, everyone shared that, definitely uh, helpful in order to reconcile the people of the two countries. And finally, in September, 13th of the September 2018, they opened the borders on the ground so people could revisit each other again. 20 years since last time they had said hello to family members, to relatives, and so on and so forth. And it was great enthusiasm in Eritrea, in Tigray, in Ethiopia, that finally we could cross, walk, or drive uh, across the border to, to, to reconnect the social ties. It's a very, very strong social tie, particularly, of course, between Eritrea and Tigray, since they are the same Historically, the same people, the same language, the same religion, the same culture, just divided by Italian colonialism in 1819. But keep in mind, just three months later, three months later, the 30th of December 2018, Isai Safwerki closed the border again on the ground and stopped people from reconnecting, stopped the reconciliation people to people. And he continued into a more politicized process. So why did he close the border again at that time? Because Abiy Ahmed was still in control in Addis. Uh, it was no changes of, of, of power. But, you know, there are different explanations to that. One of the key is that the economic benefit of opening the border was basically harvested in Tigray because it was Tigrayan businessmen who kind of capitalized on the trade, the cross-border trade, because Eritrea is depleted of a lot of commodities because of the extremely authoritarian rule and the lack of own production and the lack of import. But more importantly, in my view and many people's view, was that during those three months, tens of thousands of Eritreans, or even hundreds of thousands of Eritreans, flocked to Tigray and revisited friends and family and just enjoyed freedom, just enjoyed the liberty to sit and drink a beer 
or drink a coffee and discuss whatever without being afraid or being listened to of an intelligence agent or a spy. And they brought back to Tigray, those who went back, no, to Eritrea, and many traveled back and forth. They brought back a different narrative than Isaias Afwerki had presented them with for 20 years, that Tigrayan people and TPLF wasn't really the enemy. They were welcomed with open arms. They were embraced. They were helped. They were, you know, offered food and drinks by the Tigrayans of reconnecting. And they brought back a narrative of development, of modernity. And Eritrea has been stagnant. Eritrea hasn't developed more or less anything for the last 20 years because of the political situation. So that counter-narrative, tens of thousands of Eritreans suddenly started to discuss in the midst of Eritrea, in Asmara. That was a genuine threat to Isaias' power. So he had to reclose the border in order to stabilize, so to say, the political situation internally, because it became too dangerous to his own position. So how how what is the situation now, Shetil, in terms of this conflict? So is Eritrea going to side with Abi? Yes, they are. They are. Uh, they are uh, allied. Uh, certainly are. Uh, has been throughout. Isaias has been Abi Ahmed's closest advisor uh, to the situation on all things Tigrayan. Um, and you have to remember where Isaias come from. Isaias come from the trenches. He has been fighting a war since he was sixteen years old. Um, he thrives in war and chaos. He has elevated himself again to a regional player. He is in cohort with uh, Abi and Formaggio, the new Troika of the Horn, undermining the authority of EGAD and AU, having a divisive agenda in that regard. And now, sadly enough, as we hear from this morning, uh, a major offensive started then on the northern front, on Salambesa, on Tsorona, and also partly on Badme, against the Tigrayan forces. In collaboration with and in partnership with them, with the federal forces pressing Tigray from the south. But also a lot of federal troops have been transported to Eritrea to fight alongside them, the Eritrean soldiers, against their own countrymen, the Tigrayans. So this is a this is this might seem as a bizarre war to outsiders, but I recommend everyone to start reading up some 101 in Ethiopian history or Abyssinian feudal history. This falls into a pattern which have driven war for 2,000 years in this region, that there are different alliances and allegiances being played out in order to fight for what is called the Negus Negast, the king of kings, the emperor, the central power authority. So enemy image changes, allies changes rapidly in order to position oneself in the fight, in the struggle to acclaim the center. And that's what we see again unfolding today, sadly enough. Just wondering whether, you know, the Nobel Peace Prize Committee made an error by not awarding it also to Isaias. What, what are you, is, is he upset that he didn't get the Peace Prize? It certainly doesn't seem like it in terms of what you say is his support to Abi, right? Well, he was insulted, uh, I hear, that he wasn't included. Uh, but, you know, Abi Ahmed, as I said, he deserved the prize for what he did and what he accomplished in 2018. 
if Isaiah had been included, I think it 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 would you know you know, we're talking about one of the worst one of the worst authoritarian human rights suppressing regimes in the world. If you if if you if you grant a Nobel Peace Prize to that president, the architect of um, tens of thousands of political prisoners, of hundreds of thousands of people driven out of the country, fleeing over the last 20 years. It, it would really have been a, a major mistake, in my view at least. And I think that's what also held back the committee to, to share the price. And I think that was an absolutely correct decision at that time. And it hasn't really, it hasn't really undermined the relationship between Abi and Isaias that only Abi got the prize. And the price has certainly helped Isaias quite a lot. It has also deflected criticism from Isaias because no international, after that Nobel Committee gave the prize to Abi, no international dare to criticize human rights relations in Eritrea any longer. It has never improved. It has not been any reforms in Eritrea, mind you. The reforms have already taken place in Ethiopia. So it has become um, also legitimizing for Isaias because everybody is so afraid to so-called jeopardize the peace process. The prize hasn't really helped Abi either, has it, within the country? Oh, certainly it has. Oh, certainly it has. It has given him huge legitimacy to do what he's doing now, both to first to establish the Prosperity Party. Uh, before the prize, it was kind of a truce within EPRDF, you can say, that one should wait to establish a new party until the election or, you know, until you have consolidated somehow uh, a transition. Just immediately after the prize, he went right back from Oslo to Addis to establish his new party. And then the real confrontation started in Ethiopia. And it has been a very effective shield also from international checks and balances upon his policy and upon his development. Internationally, it has helped him, yeah. Yeah, so that's what I was going to say is that it, I mean, from my standpoint, and I'm no Ethiopia expert, Shetil, you are the one. Um, I, my, I believe that maybe this is the prize was more important in terms of getting international yeah. acclaim and support and, you know, uh, interviews with the fi- Financial Times and all of yeah. these big newspapers portraying the leadership qualities. Um, so I thought it was much more about Ethiopia's. Um, you know, growing influence and its leaders' sort of um, impatience with um, with reform. and But within mm-hmm. the country, I just got the impression that, uh, and this alludes to what you were saying earlier, I got the impression that people were saying, yeah, it's great that you got the prize, but all our problems still remain and those are not resolved. So that's why I was wondering that maybe the prize didn't help so much internally but you know of course ethiopians were ethiopians of all from all walks of life were very proud for abi receiving the prize and certainly they should be because it is a very prestigious prize and and again i stress that he deserved it based on what he did in 2018 um but um but it it was more uh, an a prize to position him internationally and to shield him and to legitimize him internationally. Now, in the current war, in the ongoing war as we speak, the prize is again used to legitimize the warfare as seen from Addis Ababa and portraying the TPLF as the really bad guys. Yeah, Because a Nobel Peace Prize winner 
obviously has a justification to wage war. Although, of course, the federal government of Ethiopia doesn't call it war, they call it a law enforcement operation, using mechanized brigade and air force and artillery to for the law enforcement operation. Mm. In hindsight, when you can think about, you know, what the TPLF did by going against the federal government's advice of not holding elections, they went ahead and and I think you were there, right, during this this time. In hindsight, Shetty, do you think that was the right strategy? Was that uh, too provocative to to go so openly against uh, Addis? Yes, it was, and um, and. Um... I have never uh, supported the conduct of the election as such. I I have studied it. I have observed it. But I think uh, absolutely it could have been avoided and the TPLF could have uh, accepted the prolongation also of their tenure as a, a regional government, as was authorized then by the federal uh, the House of Federation, so to say, as the constitutional interpretation body in Ethiopia. It was provocative, um, and I think it was done for two purposes by TPLF. One uh, was to continue delegitimizing the power and authority of Abiy Ahmed uh, and the Prosperity Party. But certainly, we have, to keep to, we have to keep in mind, too, that TPLF was also responding to calls from their own constituency. Because the regional house, the regional assembly in Tigray, was composed of um, all-time cadres, to use that term, which were not behind the regional reform agenda Dr. Debrecion, the current chair, wanted to implement in Tigray. And and the people wanted to be implemented in Tigray. So the Tigrayan people wanted to change their regional legislative assembly to get new people to represent them. And hence, they needed an election because they wanted to speed up their own regional reforms in Tigray. So it was also a pressure from the grassroots of Tigray to conduct these elections as soon as possible because of the importance to have new, open-minded, educated, reform-interested representatives in the house. So it catered for at least a dual objective, yes, to undermine and to provoke uh, the authority of Abiy Ahmed, but also to respond to their own constituency. But I agree, uh, and definitely now in retrospect, uh, it, it it would have been best if this had been postponed. But, you know, that's that's not up to me or you or anyone to judge. That's up to the Ethiopian themselves to, and, and the people at the regional level. They believe, Tigray believe, they have the constitutional mandate to do as they do. The federal government says otherwise. And the constitutional lawyers of Ethiopia, the constitutional experts, they are divided on this issue. I'd like to um, discuss one final set of issues with you, Shetil, and that has to do with this paradox of Ethiopia being one of the fastest growing non-natural resource-based economies. And while at the same time there is there has been this unequal distribution of growth, there's continued vulnerability to famine, something that my students and I have studied. It's been this kind of um, paradox of good things happening, but not benefiting everyone. And 
and Ethiopia has done something amazing by, you know, its, its economy has really grown. And I want to pick your brain about some of the strategies that the former prime minister, Meles, pursued, because I was reading mm. some of the literature where I, I got the impression that Meles was highly inspired by the East Asian developmental states like South Korea and Taiwan. And, you know, he was... Um, he he undertook the, all kinds of sort of reforms uh, in, in certain, um, uh, say, um, sectors of the economy, but he was also unwilling to liberalize, say, the financial sector. And, and so the, the discourse, at least the literature, seems to be a bit um, unclear whether Ethiopia was mm-hmm. a, a developmental state or not. But I wanted to ask you what mm-hmm. your thoughts were in terms of Meles's leadership, because conflict was uh, i suppose suppressed kept in check the economy was booming ethno nationalism was perhaps yeah under control and then abi comes in much more you know mm. talking about democratic freedoms and and faces all of these other challenges so do you see two different types of leaders or are there two similar types of leaders different sorts of challenges there are two very different kind of leaders in my view in all aspects of it and and actually the developmental state ideology the brainchild of melisenavi in ethiopia is the key sticking point now on the reforms of abi he is destructing the developmental state ideology and introducing a much more liberalized economic policy of the country much more influenced by the global monetary institutions of washington dc where most of his advisors come from so um i think uh, and which is actually have, where he has actually received some criticism from his home base that he wanted to push for the privatization of ethiopian airline for instance and ethiopian telecom the two kind of biggest state-owned enterprises in ethiopia and who are major cash earners for ethiopia ethiopian airline is the major foreign currency earner for ethiopia so to privatize that has also received skepticism from his kind of Ethiopian nationalist home base that, you know, we should maybe wait with that. Um, Melis and Avi developed, a, you know, the developmental state ideology in Ethiopia around, you know, after the dissent process in 2001 and the 2005 elections and hugely influenced, as you say, by Southeast Asian states and particularly China and also the kind of the socialist ideological framework of China is where TPLF kind of comes from to a certain degree. Although TPLF during the struggle was more an Albanian, Hoxha-inspired uh, Marxism than the China one and the Mao one. But so so they, they had much commonalities and Ethiopia has done tremendously good in achieving macroeconomic growth and also ticking off a lot of the Millennium Development Goals, as it was called earlier, and and achieving uh, remarkable progress in health, in education, and social service delivery, and so on, over the last 15, 20 years. Now, um, the last couple of years have been a bit more bumpy, where you see the economic growth trajectory have slowed, and FDIs have kind of somehow been suspended to a certain degree and then increased again. Of course, this conflict will impact also investments and certainly has already impacted development aid, which have been suspended in March over the last couple of three months. Um, so we have, we have to wait and see how the current war will also 
negatively impact economic growth trajectory of Ethiopia. But even though Ethiopia has a remarkable economic macroeconomic growth, uh, I think also Ethiopia is a case where the trickling down economy proves that it fails. For many reasons, one is, of course, the demographic growth of the country outnumber the economic growth. So the relative wealth per capita is decreasing, not increasing. Interesting. I have to actually also ask you one final question, and that relates to the fact that even before the civil war that has just started, Ethiopia was fighting on many fronts, right? So you had uh, this huge, this 10-year conflict with Egypt and Sudan over the construction of the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. And there have been so many meetings and attempts to negotiate, and this conflict continues. And I was speaking with Ashok Shrine a couple of uh, weeks ago and a previous episode in terms of the Nile Basin Initiative. And he was highly supportive of the idea that Ethiopia deserves to make use of the Nile and the water that, you know, it hasn't really benefited from it. It is about time. This is going to be, you know, the largest hydropower project in Africa. This could be beneficial for everyone. But of course, Egypt and Sudan, who seem to be more in alliance, don't see it that way. So Ethiopia was in many ways fighting on all of those fronts. And now the civil war has started. So what are your thoughts on this? Um, how, how will this impact the the politics of this grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam? How will this impact on Ethiopia's relations with its neighbors? The damming of um, the the Blue Nile, as it is called in Ethiopia, which provides uh, over 80% of the downstream uh, uh, waters in the Nile through Egypt, has been a controversy for the last 10 years, or for the last 1,000 years for that matter, if you see it in a long perspective. And that's that's also, you know, a, a child of Melis, the building of that dam. And it was... Both, of course, the purpose to harness the electricity to electrify Ethiopia and for the industry of Ethiopia, but it was increasing. It was more also a genuine nationalistic pro- project. It was a huge undertaking, and because of the controversies of damming the Nile, it was not possible for international um, financing for it. No, none of the donors of World Bank or IMF dared to put money behind it in order not to provoke Egypt or US or whatever. So this is a self-funded project on a huge scale and very much an achievement of the whole nation, which was also how it was presented by by Mellis at that time. And uh, Abiy Ahmed now, after he came to power, um, it was a, a huge controversy surrounding the construction of the dam because it was delayed in construction and uh, METEC, the military industrial conglomerate of Ethiopia who were the engineering company so to say, uh, or the uh, commission to build the dam, they were accused of huge corruption scandals and so on. Some of these guys of course implicited Tigrayan generals which is part of the blame also for this backdrop to the war. And the chief engineer of the dam was one morning found dead in his car on Mescal Square in Addis Ababa soon after Abiy took power. And it is not yet 
at least in the minds of most Ethiopians, settled if he committed suicide or was killed off by someone, presumably the new power holders. So it is a lot of intrigues and, and, and narratives surrounding this dam, which makes it a fascinating study object for, for, for many sciences. Uh, it is more or less, you know, it is 70-75% complete now. They started to fill it the first phase this summer, which almost sparked a new conflict with Egypt, as you remember. And then US have positioned itself or was positioning itself as the key broker to, to, to hammer out a deal between Ethiopia and Egypt and Sudan as a downstream countries. And, and the Trump plan clearly sided with Egypt in terms of uh, uh, rights and privileges and decision-making power on uh, how quick the dam should be filled and, and, and controversies surrounding that, which then uh, Ethiopia were forced to reject. And I, I also certainly am on the side of Ethiopia and Ethiopia's right to harness its water resources uh, for their own use. Of course, considering also downstream interest, but, but it, should be the, it should be mainly their decision to make um, as such. The dam will continue to be constructed and will continue to be filled and it will continue to be a, a, an element of controversy and a potential conflict trigger between Egypt and Ethiopia in the couple of three, four years to come. No doubt about that. Even though the tripatriate uh, negotiations have been um, have restarted again under the auspices of, of AU, which I think is the right channel to use. A bit of a paradox, if I may, at the end here, Dan, mention that um, Ethiopia is the water tower of Africa. 80% of the African highlands are in Ethiopia, and they have many rivers emanating from those highlands, north, south, and east. One of the first rivers which were dammed for electrification by the developmental state was the dam on Tekese River in Tigray. Uh, which provide the electricity to the northernmost region and to the Ethiopian grid. Today, Abi Ahmed ordered his air force to bomb that dam in order to destroy the electricity um, supply to Tigray region. It's a bit of a paradox, I would say, in these times. Indeed. Shetil, it was such a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much for coming on my podcast. You're welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me. If you enjoyed this podcast, please spread the news among your friends and share it on social media. The Twitter handle for this podcast is GlobalDevPod. Thank you for listening to In Pursuit of Development with Professor Dan Bannock from the University of Oslo Center for Development and the Environment. Please email your questions, comments, and suggestions to inpursuitofdevelopment at gmail.com.